Direct from our newsroom in New York, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite and Nelson Benton in Tuskegee, Alabama, Dan Rather in Plaquemin, Louisiana, Bernard Kalb in Saigon, Peter Kalisher in Tokyo, and Eric Severide in Washington. Good evening from our CBS newsroom in New York on this, the first broadcast of network television's first daily half-hour news program. In Alabama today, Governor Wallace ringed a public school with state troops to delay integration ordered by a federal court. And in turn, the local Alabama school board threatened defiance of the governor. At his summer White House in Hannesport on Massachusetts Cape Cod, President Kennedy today talked with this reporter of many things, including the political repercussions of the integration. How seriously do you think this civil rights situation is going to affect your chances? assuming you'll be the nominee of the Democratic Party next year, in uh, 1964. Well, obviously, it's going to be a uh, important uh, matter. It's caused a good deal of feeling, I suppose, against the administration in the South. In Arizona this week, we have lovely Rosemary Clooney. This is Raise the Dead the only show that digs up America's political history before it strikes again. If I shout, just know it's because it's right behind you. Our first season covering the 1960 election ended with John F. Kennedy doing the impossible, putting a Catholic in the White House. He did this at the expense of Richard Nixon, the heir to the legacy of the 50s, wiped away for a new generation. We also told you how it connected to our modern world, how the 2016 Trump campaign borrowed tactics, bravado, and yes, even the iconic slogan from Kennedy 1960. This season is about 1964, and it is a wild ride full of riots, sex, and revolution. It also connects to our modern world. In fact, later in this three-part series, I'll show you why a Democratic Socialist Ronald Reagan might only be a few elections away. I'll prove how every unfair, mean, and downright dishonest campaign ad you've ever seen on television owes a debt to this election. But in terms of connecting things to our modern world, I almost didn't do this episode. Because the moment that begins this episode is incomparable to anything that has happened since. To try and shoehorn a modern parallel would be disingenuous. Now. What happens after this moment? The chaos? The free-falling? The helplessness? Oh, that'll feel familiar in 2020. But we have to get to that incomparable moment first. So here we go. President John F. Kennedy, Attorney General Bobby Kennedy, and the rest of the re-elect Kennedy 64 staff meet for the first time to discuss their upcoming campaign. The big question, how hard do they play for Texas? The decision is made. They go big in the Lone Star State. Among JFK's first big public moments in his re-election campaign will be a parade through Dallas. And so, the gang heads south to kick off Kennedy 64. Jack, his wife Jackie, the native Texan son and vice president Lyndon Baines Johnson, greeting them there, unbeknownst to any of them, is a man who's in Dallas on other business. A man that only history knows is both the past and the future, Richard Nixon. How would you like to have one of these little dinosaurs for a pet? Clean and quenching, cold and bold, straight through your thirst. There's more spark to this one, more swing, more of everything that's made Pepsi the official drink of today's generation. Come alive, you're in the Pepsi generation. Since 1919, the American Bottlers of Carbonated Beverages has served as the trade organization representing the nation's non-alcoholic fizzy drinks. And on November 21st, 1963, 
they gathered the nation's soda power players in Dallas, Texas. It was there that Pepsi Cola, the modern light alternative for those who think young, hired a man who was just into private practice from the public sector, the former senator, vice president, and Republican nominee for president in 1960, Richard Milhouse Nixon. Of course, the last two years had put old Dick through the ringer. He lost in 1960 and an unsuccessful run for California governor in 1962 left him adrift. He declared that night angrily that he was retiring from politics altogether. And yet here he was on a campaign trail that was about to be in John F. Kennedy's shadow in Dallas, Texas. See, the next day, the president would begin his re-election campaign. And I wonder how that looked to Dick. Was this his past whooshing by him one last time? Maybe a sign that his political ambitions weren't quite stamped out. I wonder how he felt when he had to have an impromptu press conference during his corporate gig and was asked about Kennedy's chances as he began his campaign the next day. Uh, my present estimate on the basis of my own brief visit here and mail I've been receiving is that uh, President Kennedy's stock is considerably lower today uh, than it was in Texas in 1960 when uh, uh, I ran against him for the presidency. Uh, Lyndon Johnson's stock is not as high in Texas, at least from what I've seen as it was. In 1960, Lyndon was a help. In 1964, uh, he might not be. A Whatever. Long as the board's happy. The next day, Nixon gets ready in his hotel room to depart Dallas. Now... At this point, obviously, in 1963, the eventual resurgence of Richard Nixon is still beyond the horizon. But in that moment, I wonder if he has regret. Regrets about the old campaign losses for sure, but regrets about quitting after the governor's race. I wonder if he's trying to figure out where he belonged in the Republican Party. While the establishment wing of the party began coalescing around Nelson Rockefeller, a fine fellow in Nixon's estimation, there was an energy in the GOP. In fact, the more extreme elements of it were unsettling, radical, extreme. Nothing typified the scarier parts more than the John Birch Society. Founded in 1958 and named after a man considered by the founder of the organization to be the first casualty of the Cold War, the John Birch Society stood for limited government and virulent anti-communism, but most notably for its conspiratorial belief that the world was being corralled by moneyed interest into a global New World Order. Quote, Both the U.S. and Soviet governments are controlled by the same furtive conspiratorial cabal of internationalists, greedy bankers, and corrupt politicians. If left unexposed, the traitors inside the U.S. government would betray the country's sovereignty to the United Nations for a collectivist New World Order managed by a one-world socialist government. End quote. You imagine Nixon's reaction to stuff like this. The Birchers, by God, is that the future? The future of the party of Lincoln? The party of Eisenhower? Can't be. Nixon leaves his room at the Baker Hotel in Dallas and heads to the airport. Flitting around the street as he drives off is a John Birch Society flyer entitled Wanted for Treason excoriating Kennedy among the charges betraying the constitution being wrong on the United Nations Berlin Wall missile removal and Cuba being lax in enforcing communist registration laws giving support and encouragement to the communist inspired racial riots and consistently appointing anti-Christians to federal office 
As Dick Nixon approaches the airport, getting ready to leave, I imagine him playing out how these party shifts are going to end up. He himself, Nixon did, faced the wrath of the Republican conservatives in Chicago at the party convention in 1960. And that was just because he dared to liberalize the party platform. The man who led that revolt then was now rising in party power, that man being Barry Goldwater. Now, Barry swears he has no allegiance to the kooks in the Birch Society. And Nixon believes. But you do have to wonder, does Barry's brand of inflexible conservatism call to them? Barry himself is a statesman, if a bit ornery. But that passion, that lack of bend, what does it say? If he gains in popularity, what happens to the party if he wins the nomination? Ah, you know what? You know what? You know that feeling? That one that starts in the back of your neck and then kind of relieves your shoulders and your legs kind of feel a little bit wobbly because something's not your problem anymore? I imagine Nixon having that feeling as he gets to the airport and leaves Dallas. Two hours later, Air Force One touches down at Love Field, heralding the official beginning of Kennedy 64. Kennedy and Dallas made all the sense in the world. This was Kennedy's 1960 playbook. Don't be afraid, never back down. So what Dallas hated him? Who cares? Wisconsin loved Hubert Humphrey because he lived next door in Minnesota and the Kennedys crushed him. The bigots hated Catholics in West Virginia and the Kennedys won there too. When the Houston Ministerial Convention sought to have Jack as a guest, the weak-willed saw it as a trap. The ministers would love to sink the candidacy of the first Catholic Democratic nominee in 50 plus years. Too bad. Jack killed it at his speech and made it through a flawless Q&A. The result was television gold and the Kennedy machine made sure it was on the 8 o'clock news exactly where it needed to be, market by market, letting anybody who had any doubts about the Kennedy campaign know that their man feared no one. Challenges aren't scary, they are simply stakes. Achieve and they work for you. Jack and Jackie get into the 1961 Lincoln Continental that had been retrofitted for the president's parade. In front of them are John Connolly, the governor of Texas, and his wife, Nellie. Listeners, this is where I gotta stop. Because I would love to tell you about this campaign. Kennedy versus Goldwater, or maybe you'd be Kennedy versus Rockefeller. We'll never know because it doesn't happen. Because of what happens right after this next moment. What happens right after this next moment sets into motion more than any of these men could ever know. Unspeakable national tragedy, the inescapable void of political power, and a desperate attempt to reestablish authority by pushing through an iconic piece of legislation during an election year. And in that time, one politician will make a decision that will haunt him well after he's dead and buried. What you are about to hear over the next three episodes 
is what happens when there are no rules. There is no playbook for this. There is no history to draw from. You make the news that you can make. We are only seconds away from entering into a brutal, brutal age. And there will only be the winners to tell the story. And that all happens after this moment. The crowd lining the streets are going wild, screaming. This inspires Governor Connolly's wife, Nellie, to turn back to Jack and yell. Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you. My name is Justin Robert Young. News dies and becomes history, but tonight, oh yeah, we raise the dead. a bulletin from CBS News. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Barry Goldwater was on his way to a funeral when he got the news. His mother-in-law died, and he was now en route with his wife to her hometown of Muncie, Indiana. It was then that he got word. President Kennedy had been shot in Dallas and shortly later declared dead. The new president was Lyndon Baines Johnson. These are Barry's first words to reporters after he found out. Well, it came so, it came so quickly to me. It, uh, it was handed to me in Chicago at O'Hare yesterday when I landed from Phoenix on my way here to Muncie. I just didn't believe it at first. And uh, later on, uh, when we were airborne again, it was confirmed. But both Mrs. Goldwater and I are extremely shocked to lose a friend like that and, and shocked to think that the world has to lose a young leader uh, at a time like this and in a way like that. Barry really liked Jack. They were friends. They served on the Labor Committee together as senators and debated each other often. Well, history might have sweetened this idea a bit, there's enough from multiple sources to say that the pair were excited at the idea of running against each other in 1964. Goldwater uh, secured that the election would be about ideas, and his idea was very different than Jack's idea. That idea being conservatism. Which brings us to 70 minutes of total agony. That's the amount of time between the shooting of JFK and the apprehension of Lee Harvey Oswald. And even then, you can probably double it before word really starts trickling out. It's in that period of time that the question on everyone's mind is the same. Who killed Kennedy? Now, this is a really, really, really hard question to ask in 2020 because theories about the CIA and the mafia, they've all persisted for decades. But in this moment, the most realistic options on the minds of 1963 America are the USSR or a fringe right-wing Bircher, the same kind that papered Dallas calling Kennedy a treasonous traitor. If you're Goldwater the first thought you have to have is, did a registered Republican just kill the Democratic president of the United States of America? Barry's advisor, Cliff White, 
thought it was possible. In fact, it was his first thought. He reportedly reacted to first news of the death by yelling, it was one of our crazies. Television news reportedly showed archival footage of conservatives pushing and spitting on Adelaide Stevenson in Dallas a month earlier. Meanwhile, the draft Goldwater offices became a target and furious visitors began banging on the locked door, screaming, murderers. Put yourself in Barry's shoes on this one. He's an unrepentant conservative and there are increasing fringe elements to the Republican Party that is loathed by the party itself as extreme. Furthermore, the party leadership thinks Barry is a favorite of the fringe. So what if the killer is a member of the draft Goldwater movement? What happens next? Forget trying to run for president. Is your career done? Will the media ever let you forget it? Will you ever be known for anything else? And morally, did you do anything to cause this? And let's make it even more real. Let's say you loathe President Trump or whoever the president is when you listen to this. Let's say they are shot dead. Are you worried that your political opinions match with the killer. It's even trickier in our social media age. Do you wonder if you have the same Facebook likes? If you follow the same accounts on Twitter, if you've bought the same books on Amazon? Just thinking about that kind of guilt, at least for me, is, is suffocating. Even more so, in 1963, as Barry reconciles that with the fact that his friend is dead. Of course, we soon find out that Lee Harvey Oswald is a communist, but not a Soviet soldier, and he worked alone. He has no connection to the John Birch Society or the Republican Party. Which is a relief, obviously. But still... Barry has to make his way to Washington, D.C. And that's where he heads after Muncie to pay his respects, along with the rest of the world, to the 35th president of the United States of America and to meet, for the first time, the 36th president of the United States of America, Lyndon Baines Johnson. The world had yet to see the spectacle of grief that it saw on November 25th, 1963. The American president had died before, some even shot to death like Kennedy. But never when America rested atop the global food chain, and none with television cameras. Also mortally injured, though not totally dead, is quite possibly the true star of this podcast series. The Kennedy political machine. Sure, Father Joe had long since been rendered a shell of himself from a stroke, but Bobby Kennedy was still there. So were the speechwriters and pollsters and aides. The machine that hijacked the Democratic Party had just been getting ready to do it again... And now it was over. All of it. Well, maybe. Maybe LBJ would honor the legacy of the great fallen man by putting his brother on the ticket as vice president. Of course, 
That would rely on LBJ and Bobby getting over the fact that they hate each other. But that's something we'll deal with a little bit later. On the 22nd, a 30-day moratorium on public politics was agreed upon by both parties. To put that into a modern-day comparison, at the same time in 2019, double-digit Democratic candidates were preparing to barnstorm Iowa for the caucus, and the House was in full tilt on their campaign to impeach the president because of his interactions with Ukraine. But for the good of the country, in 1963, they decide to lay off. There should be no political lines drawn. All Americans should grieve the passing of a president. The only problem is that the current president, LBJ, had no intention of sitting on his hands. LBJ found himself where he always wanted to be, albeit through very macabre circumstances. A Senate operator who came to power as a Southern Democrat and made an uneasy alliance with Kennedy was now the most powerful man in the world. And he had no intention of jeopardizing his new position. So almost immediately, LBJ turned his eyes to next November. As cunning a political mind as any of the Kennedys, he knew the Republicans were at a severe disadvantage. A traumatized public likely had very little appetite to meet their third president in 12 months. That's far too much. LBJ not only saw a likely win, if he played his cards right, this could be a wipeout. And that's the idea that LBJ can't let go of. The blowout. JFK was beloved for barely winning. If LBJ was going to be his own man, not simply a custodian for a greater man, he had to give the public reasons why. Everything came back to winning, and winning big. We're going to spend a lot more time on LBJ in our third episode, but for now, let's focus on moments around JFK's funeral. How does LBJ make every second past this moment count? How does he establish his own legacy without dishonoring the memory of Jack? The answer is to make a dead man's wish come true. Take something that JFK pushed and make it a reality. The answer is civil rights. JFK began his push for civil rights legislation in June of 1963, after continued demonstrations in the South. His bill had been bottled up by a House Rules Committee and would likely never see the light of day. But that was when JFK was president. In this moment, he's a demigod. And so, in one of his first speeches to the nation... On November 27th, only five days after JFK was killed in a joint session of Congress, Lyndon let everyone in D.C. know who the new man of the House was. He called for JFK's Civil Rights Act to be passed, and he did so without consulting or notifying the Republican Party who believed they were still honoring a month-long moratorium on politics. No memorial oration or eulogy could more eloquently honor President Kennedy's memory than the earliest possible passage of the Civil Rights Bill for which he fought so long. We have talked long enough in this country about equal rights. We have talked for a hundred years or more. It is time now to write the next chapter and to write it in the books of law. 
it's a brilliant, brilliant tactical decision. Like, what what are you going to do if you don't agree with what LBJ is saying in that moment? Disrespect the very memory of the person that the world is grieving for? You can't. And so the House voted to free that bill and it was passed on to the Senate. It wouldn't take long for politicians to realize exactly how pressing some of these issues were. A 15-year-old Bronx boy named James hears a commotion. The crusty old superintendent is spraying kids his age with a hose so they get off of his stoop. He allegedly calls the kids dirty N-words. In response, the boys grab a trash can lid and bottles and throw it at the super, who retreats into the apartment building. James follows that super inside, but doesn't stay long. When he comes back outside, he comes face to face with an off-duty New York City police officer. The officer fires a warning shot at James, shattering one of the apartment building windows. But the next bullet doesn't miss. It hits James in the arm. The third bullet hits James in the gut. James dies. A grown man in Minneapolis named George walks into a grocery store to buy cigarettes. The clerk believes he paid for those cigarettes with a counterfeit $20 bill. The clerk leaves the shop and meets George at his car, demanding that he give the cigarettes back. George refuses. The clerk calls the police. Two police confront George and handcuff his arms behind his back. Another car arrives with two more officers. One of them has rank and takes control of the arrest. When George falls to the floor... The ranking officer kneels on the back of his neck for eight minutes. Despite pleas that he can't breathe, the officer continues to kneel. George dies. James died in 1964, seven years before George was born. George died in 2020. If James had lived, he'd be 71 in 2020, born the same year as Senator Elizabeth Warren. Of course, these cases are more complicated than the simple facts. Indeed, there are controversial aspects and different sides. For example, the cop that shot James said that James was wielding a knife. But the communities that George and James came from both saw only one thing. A dead black American at the hands of the police sworn to protect them. In 1964 and in 2020, the community had the same reaction. These are sounds of the Harlem riots of 1964. They then spread to Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, and from there across the Hudson to New Jersey, where riots broke out in Patterson and Elizabeth. It then went further west to Philadelphia, Rochester, and Chicago. It would take time to finally reach the Pacific Ocean, but a year later, Watts, a black neighborhood in Los Angeles, would also be in flames. Each community set off by the long-standing grievances between the people and the police. Grievances that obviously have not seen much improvement. 
for it's the death of Floyd, as well as Brianna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, who is shot dead in her home after a botched no-knock warrant was executed that touch off the protesting and rioting in 2020. In 2020, it begins in Minneapolis. Soon, New York City is again in flames, as was Atlanta, Oakland, Los Angeles, and Miami. The protests, meanwhile, spread worldwide. Video evidence of the Floyd death specifically motivates people from around the world to march in solidarity. In 2020, this did rouse Congress to attempt to pass legislation that would address police brutality. The House Democrats wrote a bill. The Senate Republicans wrote a bill. Either liked what the other one had written, and to this moment while I am recording this, nothing has been passed. But in 1964, the Civil Rights Act is already rolling. And with violence in the streets as a backdrop, the pressure is on to push it through. Listeners to the first season of Raise the Dead will remember Hubert Humphrey. As we last left him, he was a bit of a sad sack. A true blue progressive destroyed by the newly unveiled Kennedy campaign war machine. The Kennedys unleashed glamour and celebrity through Wisconsin when Hubert handed out soup recipes on the corner to connect with prospective primary voters. Then Robert Kennedy cajoled one of Hubert's own friends to denigrate Hubert's military service while on the trail in West Virginia. Things got so nasty between Humphrey and the Kennedys that when Bobby Kennedy came to Humphrey Campaign HQ after the West Virginia results came in, Hubert's wife refused to see him. The last thing we'd heard of Hubert was his unsuccessful final convention push to derail Kennedy with the help of Eleanor Roosevelt. But now, a man who was humiliated by the Kennedys four years earlier found himself as the man who had to cement his fallen rival's legacy. It was Hubert who serves as the Senate Majority Whip and sponsor for the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The passage of the bill faced a fairly manageable road to success. The House version would have to be amended slightly to attract Republican support, but that was feasible. The real opposition to the bill lay within Hubert's own party. The old power of the Democratic Party laid in the South. The architects of Jim Crow and segregation are none too happy with this bill and are determined to push it to the brink. The Southern Democratic strategy to kill this bill was to slow play it by filibustering. They hoped that the longer the nation sat with the civil rights bill, the more it would turn against it. But instead of taking a righteous tone against these politicians, Humphrey let their filibuster continue and continue and continue, assuming that exactly the opposite would happen the more the country sat with the bill, that they would warm to it and begin to turn against some of the old Southern senators. By the time that they were done filibustering, the Senate Dixiecrats delayed the proceedings of the 1964 Civil Rights Act by 54 days. They had no other recourse but to let the old guardians that had brought the party to electoral prominence 
to die in front of them on the floor. Among those men who filibustered, Albert Gore Sr. of Tennessee and Robert Byrd of Virginia, who personally filibustered the bill for over 14 hours in one session. Said Humphrey of the flagging strategy. Don't cheer, boys. The poor devils are dying. This is no longer a battle for the heart or them. They simply have to die in the trenches. That's what they were sent here for. They're old and they haven't any recruits. They know it. One of them said to me, you simply have to overwhelm us. And so we have to beat them to a pulp. No one can make peace. They have to be destroyed. End quote. The decisive moment comes when Humphrey strikes a deal with Republican Senator Everett Dirksen of Illinois. He brings enough of his own party support to the winning side, and they end the filibuster. With that, it becomes all but certain that the bill is going to become law. All that remains is the final vote. The bill itself guarantees that black Americans vote with the same rights as white Americans. It forbids the discrimination of black Americans not only in public spaces, but, as we are about to find out controversially, in private businesses. It permits the attorney general to bring suit so he can desegregate schools anywhere in the country and establishes the Equal Opportunity Employment Committee, which would seek to ensure that employers or unions could not discriminate. And it is with that that Senator Barry Goldwater makes the most notorious and consequential political decision of his life. popular understanding of history would tell you that Barry Goldwater is a racist. This is almost entirely based on his vote against the 1964 Civil Rights Bill. Before we go any further, let's understand a few things about Barry Goldwater. The half-Jewish military man gave very little care to what people thought of him. The child of immigrants who settled the West was a big believer in the idea that actions should define a man, not words. There was also evidence to say that leading up to this vote, Barry was not only a believer in civil rights, but uncommon even for the average of a man, let alone a politician in the early 60s, he fought for them. He helped desegregate the Arizona Air National Guard in the 40s. As a shop owner, he normalized salaries between black and white employees who held the same positions when he became aware that there was a discrepancy. He was an early member of the Phoenix chapter of the NAACP and Urban League. In 1953, he desegregated the Senate cafeteria when one of his black aides was denied service. He also had a legislative history of supporting civil rights, voting for the Civil Rights Bill in 1957 and 1960. But, his critics say, he wasn't running for president when he did those things. In this moment, they would continue, Barry Goldwater saw an opportunity to signal to racists that he was their man. With the Dixiecrats in revolt, he could be the natural home for their bigoted ballots in November. So what does Barry say about his vote? Well, according to Barry, there are only two reasons he voted against the bill, Title II and Title VII. Title II 
called for the outlawing of discrimination in private establishments which offered public accommodations. Specifically, calling out restaurants, hotels, motels, and theaters. Title VII prohibits discrimination of hiring based on race, color, religion, and national origin. Quite simply, Barry believed that this was government overreach that would lead to disastrous consequences. In his public explanation for his vote, he envisioned an America that would have to create a federal police force to enforce this law and create a snitch culture where citizens would be searching for reasons to call the cops on their neighbor. Ironically, NAACP Secretary Roy Wilkins would later say that a Goldwater victory in 1964 would lead to a police state similar to the one Barry was terrified of. Barry Goldwater did have a segment of the population he wanted to rally for 1964. Conservatives wary of government intervention on all manner of issues. Are a portion of those people racist? Unquestionably. But then again, specifically in the mid-60s, I have a hard time thinking of any subsection of mainstream political thought that didn't harbor fringe elements of discrimination, such as the original sin of our nation with slavery and our stubborn inability to deal with it. Quote Barry, I repeat again, I am unalterably opposed to discrimination of any sort, and I believe that though the problem is fundamentally one of the heart, some law can help, but not law that embodies features like this. Provisions which fly in the face of the Constitution and which require, for their executive execution, the creation of a police state. And so, because I am unalterably opposed to any threats to our great system of government and the loss of our God-given liberties, I shall vote no on this bill. This vote will be reluctantly cast because I had hoped to be able to vote yay on the measure, as I have on civil rights bills that have preceded it. But I cannot, in good conscience to the oath that I took when assuming office, cast my vote in the affirmative. With the exception of Titles 2 and 7, I could wholeheartedly support this bill. But with their inclusion not measurably improved by the compromise version that we've been working on, my vote must be no. If my vote is to be misconstrued, let it be and let me suffer its consequences. Just let me be judged in this by the real concern I have voiced here and not by the words that others may speak or by what others may say about what I think. End quote. Barry has indeed suffered the consequences. The vote in many ways has overshadowed his entire career. Personally, it makes sense to me that Barry was indeed telling the truth in his explanation. Beyond his reputation as a straight shooter, as we will explain in this season, Barry is not a particularly calculating campaigner. His lack of guile continually haunts him through 1964. In fact, one biography of him makes it very clear that he never thinks he even has a shot to win against LBJ. But what Barry Goldwater almost certainly is, is a pendant for government rules and regulations. While the aims of the 1964 bill agree with his moral compass, the methods by which they are achieved violates, in his mind, the Constitution, and therefore, the conversation should be about amending the Constitution instead of passing laws in violation of it. There's also this. 
The idea of a politician using coded racial language is something that many listeners can relate to as our modern mainstream has publicly become more understanding of the concept of racial justice. But in 1964, when senators like Strom Thurmond are roaming the halls, the penalty for being an out-and-out racist is virtually nil. If Barry Goldwater wanted to cater to segregationists, this would be an unnecessarily coy way of doing it. And that's something that also wasn't Barry's style. Still, even in my charitable estimation, history can fault Barry for two things. First, his apocalyptic vision of a police state enforcing racial equalization laws has not, at least as of my recording, come to pass. Second, as a white man from the West, he was fundamentally disconnected from the experiences of black Americans on the streets of the cities in the East Coast and Midwest. For those folks, the communities that were in such pain over the death of their own children in the streets, this bill was a fire truck racing toward a raging fire. To vote against it because you believe the air pressure was low in the tires was unnecessarily cruel. But that is a view from 2020. In 1964, the vote even then cemented public perception of Barry Goldwater as an extremist, a vision that wasn't just in the Democratic Party, but had begun to take further root in the Republican Party. It also gave a tremendous public win for LBJ. For Lyndon Baines Johnson, this was only the first step to make sure that both of those trends continue. Raise the Dead is written, researched, and recorded by me, Justin Robert Young. It was edited by Dog and Pony Show Audio in Oakland, California. Original score by Carson Pace. For a list of all the books used for research, please go to our website, raisethedeadpodcast.com, for a compilation of our written transcripts. And an audiobook version of this series featuring bonus conversations, please head on over to raisethedeadpodcast.com slash complete. If you would like my take on modern politics as they happen, please find my podcast, Politics, 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 where all podcasts are found. And finally, you can follow me on Twitter at Justin R. Young. And now, let's get to a few things I didn't have a chance to fit in the episode. All right, let's start with Kennedy 64 and part of the reason why Dallas was very important to them. It was not a shock that they were having a separation anxiety within the Democratic Party between the civil rights north and the segregationist south. This is something that we talked a lot about in the first season. But Texas specifically was of great concern to them because they got slaughtered in the midterms, the Democrats did. And specifically, Dallas was thought to be by the Texas Democrats to be an open revolt. So the Kennedys going there was, again, you know, a bit of a, a bold move, a way to say, well, look, you guys might leave eventually, but you're not going to leave while JFK is here because JFK is very popular. As you heard Nixon talk about, LBJ was the bigger liability there. LBJ was somebody that, would have had a hard time running for re-election after a second Kennedy term, not only because he might not have been the favored candidate for Kennedy to bless, but also because his power base 
in the South was effectively gone. And part of the reason why it was was because of how he handled 1960. All right, let's talk Nixon. So Nixon technically wasn't there at the Bottler's Convention as entertainment, although he was effectively entertainment. He technically was there as an attorney to Pepsi because he was working in private law practice after he left politics. But he was treated as a star, uh, as was another member of the board of Pepsi who stayed next door to Nixon in the hotel, Joan Crawford. She had <laughs> married a, mem- uh, uh, a man on the board of PepsiCo and now had inherited uh, that spot after her husband died. The Bottler's Convention was at Dallas's Market Hall. This was kind of the premier place where you would have a big event. That meant that the Kennedys couldn't secure Market Hall for their big luncheon they were going to have with local leaders in Dallas, meaning that they had to go to the trademark. The difference between Market Hall and the trademark, if you're trying to get back and forth from Love Field Airport, is that you drive through Dealey Plaza. Here's another connection. The official pamphlet showing off all the cool things that various different bottlers can buy or purchase includes an ad for a local business. The Carousel Burlesque Lounge, owned by Jack Ruby, who would eventually shoot Lee Harvey Oswald dead and then die in prison. Of course, Nixon never meets the Kennedys. He gets out of town uh, right before they arrive, flying from Dallas to where he was living in New York City. Of course, he flies to Idlewild Airport, which only a month later would be renamed John F. Kennedy Airport. But it was in Love Field that he runs into American Airlines VIP liaison Walter Hagen, who spots Nixon and describes him like this uh, in in a, a fairly iconic article that was run in the Dallas Morning News in 2013. Quote, he didn't look like he had a friend in the world. Someone dropped him off at the curb there, the American Airlines ticket counter. I, of course, greeted him and he was very sociable. Nixon told him, Looks like you're going to have a big day. Yeah. Nixon found out about JFK dying in his cab ride from Idlewild to his Central Park apartment. He stayed up very late that night and wrote a letter to Jackie Kennedy. One last point that I do want to address, and that is... Barry Goldwater's idea, and this again, it's in multiple sources, so I think there's something to it, that he believed if he were the Republican nominee, JFK and Barry could share a plane and not do individual campaign stops, that they would travel together and they would speak to a combined audience. They would each get up. They would say their thing. Maybe there'd be a little soft debate. But the idea would be, we are Americans. And this is not about tribal warfare. This is about ideas. So we can be civil. We can debate each other in public. This doesn't have to be us whipping up opposite armies. I think Barry does believe this is possible. Having read enough about Bobby Kennedy and the Kennedy family, the only way I think they would have even entertained it is if it would have been so clear that this was an advantage for the Kennedys that they would have done it. I tend to believe that Barry would have been eaten alive by the Kennedys. 
they, especially at this point, were were so well honed in getting what they want. And Barry, for all of his stick-to-itiveness, was not exactly a very, very, very think five steps ahead, 6D chess kind of campaigner. But what he was was a true believer. And that's what we discuss next time. History is written by the winners, it's said, and politics is no different. But as much as this podcast and our culture celebrates the win-at-all-cost mercenaries whose morals are only something they need to subjugate so they can grab the biggest slice of the pie, they are forever revealed as feckless when faced up against somebody who really means it. Are you ready for a political revolution? I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Barry Goldwater, Bernie Sanders, the tragic tale of the true believer and the parties that sought to snuff their campaigns out, including the inside story, how one succeeded and the other failed. Next time on Raise the Dead. Dog and Pony Show Audio. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs)